In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very room in this very speaking these words in the first person, but on behalf of each person here. And if they resonate with you, all that is required is a, a simple yes, a willingness. But what I affirm and know is there's one life, one power, one presence. There's an infinite unseen force for good that is having its way in and through and as me in this moment that is doing for me and through me because I'm ever more available to a larger and larger experience of life. And this is available in my experience because I'm in agreement with this. I bring this surrender, this humility, this joy, this gratitude and appreciation, the forgiveness of anything and putting down anything that in any way, shape, or form restricts that experience, that oneness, that beautiful experience of the, the one life that all of the wonderful, beautiful, deep teachings throughout the ages have expressed. And so we stand, I stand with you this day in declaration of that, in recognition of that, in the celebration of that, in the, in the invitation of that. And I know that in that, I am guided and directed as I ground myself energetically in this moment, coming home to myself in this moment. And this moment is the eternal moment, precious, powerful, gentle, calm, creative, celebratory, joy-filled, joyful, and so all of those qualities, whatever it is that I impress upon this infinite divine intelligence that always says yes, this becomes my experience. And so I give thanks to live a life that is conscious and aware, more conscious and more aware every day, every breath, every thought. And anything unlike that that does not support that, I instruct this infinite intelligence within me to make it aware in my knowing and also to be about the business of dissolving this and so much more that no longer serves me. For this I give thanks. So grateful for this beautiful teaching, all the beautiful teachers that have shared this whose shoulders we stand upon. I release these words in gratitude and appreciation and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, as Stacy said, you were a rowdy bunch, but you settled right in, so... I had a reading I was going to share, and I thought, oh, the, the energy is so lovely. So, man, I was like, well, let's drop into that. So I'll share it with you now. This comes from Dr. Ernest Holmes. We're talking about living your moments as if they really matter. Does anybody agree with that? Here we go. Wherever you go, there you are. Book, wonderful book by John Kabat-Zinn. So Dr. Holmes said this about our philosophy. He said this about life. Holmes was not restricted by the box of our teaching was the only way but he realized that 
there were things to add to the conversation and to the examination and exploration of the deeper, the deeper understandings of what all the great teachers were attempting to model and share with us. He said, as consciousness grows, it will manifest in enlarged opportunities and a greater field of action. And so we're about the celebration of spirituality, which is really the celebration of our own consciousness, our own sense and experience of oneness with this this force for good. He continues, feel that you are surrounded by the power. Feel that you are surrounded by the power. So I invite you to allow, just to set the intention at that deep level of being your higher wisdom self to sense and feel that you are surrounded by this power. And it's also within you. And that there is when you speak and never doubt, but that what you say will spring into being. So a sense of oneness, and then our words activate this. We should speak right out into mind all that we desire. So he's talking about the one mind, this infinite divine intelligence that always responds to us. All that we desire and believe that it will be done unto us. See yourself as being in the position that you desire mentally, dwell upon it, and then speak with perfect assurance that it is done. And then forget it and trust in the law. You've activated it, you've impressed upon this infinite divine intelligence that always responds. Trust in it. But many times we want to pull it back in and say, oh, you know, it's not happening. Because I I said this prayer and it's not happening. Or I've set this intention and it's not happening. And so we think it doesn't work. When in fact it is working all the time. But by by slipping into that, that sense of lack or not being supported, whatever it may be, we unravel some of the good work we've done. So we got to go back in and and reaffirm and reestablish ourselves in that alignment of consciousness. Remember that you cannot hope to get results unless you keep but the one idea and do not mix thoughts in your mind. All is yours, but you must take it. The taking is always a mental process. It is believing absolutely. And so how do we get to that? How do we, how do we create a field of that believing and that possibility that um, supports us in that? You know, I watch, I've watched wonderful events happen time and time again as a result of using this, this, the philosophy that we teach. And it does work. But what happens when it doesn't work? What's happening there? And so I wanted to, to share this information for, uh, with you today around uh, John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. It's a wonderful little book. It's a bunch of little practices. And the chapters are really, really short. And it's just wonderful little insights. And I want to share with you a few of those today because I think they're so valuable in us connecting in that. You know, Jesus used to say, seek ye first the kingdom. And then he used all these metaphors at the time when, he's, when he was doing his, you know, he was an itinerant minister. He didn't have a, a temple that people went to. He didn't, you know, he wandered around and he could gather people together. And, and as the, the stories go, he would speak in parables. And the parables were stories that reflected what he was trying to convey, but in a way that was more accessible and available to the population at the time. And many times it referred to, seek ye first the kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven is like. But he was always talking at the level of the uh, metaphysical, beyond physical, to use those as examples. And so it was difficult because the people at that time, and he, of course he was a young Jewish man, uh, believed that the kingdom was an earthly kingdom and that there was going to be this Messiah that would show up and save the, the, the uh, nation of Israel as the legends and the prophecies had expressed. And he showed up, but his whole message was about consciousness and finding the kingdom. And I think the, this work we're going to talk about today in a beautiful, very simple way is a, one of the doorways, one of the most important doorways to that kingdom.
So I've used this, I used this quote last month and I'll use it again this month. Life is a mirror and reflects back to the thinker what he or she thinks into it by Dr. Ernest Holmes. That our experiences, what we're experiencing in life is a direct correlation to what our embodied um, beliefs are and expectations. And sometimes it's very difficult to dismantle that because they're so powerful. They can be so dramatic. So the Buddha said, be a light unto yourself. And John Kabat-Zinn said, mindfulness has everything to do with waking up and living in harmony with oneself and with the world. So mindfulness is simply waking up and living in harmony with ourselves and living in harmony with the world. Sort of a radical idea, isn't it? He also expands in this book in the introduction. He said, mindfulness provides a simple but powerful route for getting ourselves unstuck. Mindfulness can get us out of the spin of being stuck in something. Back in touch with our own wisdom and vitality, it is a way of taking charge of the direction and quality of our lives, including our relationships within the family, our relationships to work, and to the larger world and planet, and most fundamentally, our relationship with ourselves as a person. And so simple, but such a challenge, isn't it? He said, the habit of ignoring our present moments in favor of others yet to come leads directly to a pervasive lack of awareness of the web of life in which we are embedded. This includes a lack of awareness and understanding of our own mind and how it influences our perceptions and our actions and our experiences in life. So every moment does matter, making the moments in our lives matter. It's just right now. There's no other moment than now. God, knows no, God does not have a past. God does not have a future. God only has now. What a way to live, huh? And so I'm going to highlight some of the, um, the things that uh, in his book that he goes along. He uses simple, simple little practices. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn also says, to allow ourselves to be truly in touch with where we already are, no, ma- no matter where that is. This is one of the first steps. We've got to pause in our experience long enough to let the present moment sink in. Long enough to feel the, the present moment, to see it in its fullness, to hold it in awareness, and thereby come to know and understand it better. Otherwise, we, we miss the gifts in it. You know. Otherwise, we miss what's there for us, and we're just on to another activity, to another thought. So as he says, well, first of all, I have a quote here. A student once said, when I was a Buddhist, it drove my parents and friends crazy. But when I am a Buddhist, nobody is upset at all. When I am the Buddha, when I am the Christ consciousness, when I am the Buddha, when I am grounded in my own being, no one has a problem with that. But it, and for me, it suggests the idea that you, know, you find a teaching, you find something that's really rich and wonderful, and then, of course, you want to go out and share and convert everybody. And this was my experience with this teaching, is that you know, I found this and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so great. I've got to tell my brothers and sisters and everybody I know, and they, they get away from me. But it wasn't, but, but that's the propensity. You know, we see a, a great performance, we have a great experience, and we want everyone, we want to share that with everyone. And yet, in fact, how does that, how does that great performance, that great experience impact us and change and shift us? Is really the gift in it. The bloom of present moment are some of the ideas. There's five ideas I want to share with you today. The first one is it's simple, but it's not easy. So this practice is super simple but it's not easy. Mindfulness. 
We may encounter deep emotions when we're doing the mindfulness, things that we probably wouldn't look at, such things as grief, sadness, woundedness, anger, fear, that we might not ordinarily allow ourselves to hold in awareness or express consciously. It can also open us up to such feelings as joy, peacefulness, and happiness. Joy, peacefulness, and happiness. Do you notice um, when the... um, uh, when the Edmonton Eskimos won the Grey Cup this last week, and then it was all about what's going to happen next. You know, what's going to happen next? As if, couldn't we just take a little time and just enjoy this before we figure out what's going to happen next? Because what's going to happen next will happen next. But could we just celebrate this? And of course, you, you know, that's why I turn the, talk, the sports radio off most of the time, because it's all about... It's like, these, how do these guys talk about this stuff? They've been talking about the Edmonton Oilers nonstop for the last six years. And it's, it's a wonderful conversation, but it's like as if this conversation will change things. But people, we're, we're addicted to that. More conversation, more thinking, let's fix them, let's fix them, let's fix them. You know, and people calling in, and it's just, it's fascinating. But it just keeps us so occupied, isn't it? With what? Because it's, it's a boondoggle. It's just activity for the sake of activity. It just speaks to how we, this, this, we are a vacuum for meaningless information that has nothing to do with us. You know, if they'd invite me down there, I could, I could run the team. I just, I just told uh, Len Rose, I said, I want to apply for the new coach job when this coaching job opens up. If it should open up. We don't know. Oh my God, what's going to happen? <laughs> I don't know. But you know what? I haven't lost one minute of sleep over it. <laughs> That's how evolved I am. I wish them all well. You know, it's just the ongoing nature of life. So, it's simple but not easy. It can open us up to deep reservoirs of creativity, of intelligence, imagination, clarity, determination, choice, and wisdom within us just by the simple act of being in peace, planting seeds of peace, being mindful. I need to know the answer, need to know the answer, need to know the answer. I need need an authority to tell me my answer. When in fact, when we sit quietly enough, the answers will reveal themselves. Our next thing to do will reveal itself. So this, this capacity is very interesting. Uh, um, John Kabat-Zinn talks about it in another of his books that uh, is a real gem, and I'm using p- parts of it this month. It's called Choose, Coming to Our Senses, another beautiful, wonderful book. And in Coming to Our Senses, he talks about this, the potential that we all have to think and to talk. And this potential, which I take for granted, but when I read it, I thought, how significant. So as children, yesterday, uh, Laura and I went over to our, our granddaughters. We have a new granddaughter, Audrey, and so we take turns rocking her while her mom was taking a shower. You know, we go over and hold her and rock her, and then we hand her back and forth and talk about her. And it's just a little meditation. She's just sleeping, and we're there with her, holding that space with her. And, but in this piece, in um, Coming to Our Senses, John Kabat-Zinn says, that we, have this, we all have the capacity to capacity and, and potential to talk and to think. But if we are isolated, if we take a child and we isolate them and they are not stimulated by the human voice, by human interaction, by uh, eye contact and all of those things that are involved with uh, the large swaths of mental functioning that are cognitive and, and emotional, if they are arrested and squashed, even reasoning uh, becomes severely curtailed. And after a certain point, if a child is isolated long enough, they don't catch up. That capacity does not, it's not 
that, okay, at 12 years old, all of a sudden the stimulus is there. They are, there's a piece of their development that is stunted. So the framework is there for all of us. But it has to be primed. It has to be sculpted. It has to be shaped. It's nurtured through immersion in sounds made by humans. Exposure to faces making sounds. Eye contact to inflection and to relationships to other human beings. So it's so easy for myself to take that for granted, and yet without those things, we don't develop. And he, and he correlates that to meditation. He said the same is true of meditation. We require a teacher. We require stimulus. He talks about some people, it appears some people have just natural genius, that they, they develop their own genius on their own. Mozart would, could be an example of that, and yet Mozart's father worked with him. Mozart's father was a musician and influenced him and worked with him. The Buddha. The Buddha didn't just fall into his spiritual practices. He had a teacher. He had an environment. He stepped into some of the meditation practices of the time, and he tried those out. He tried living out in the bush with the, the aesthetics, with nothing, and meditating and praying all day long, very little food or nourishment. And so that was one extreme. And then, of course, he was raised in opulence. His father was a, a king and his mother, and they tried to protect him from seeing the suffering of the world. And so what Buddha discovered was it wasn't either or. It was the middle way. It was the middle way awareness. In fact, they didn't even have a time, a word, when Buddha was alive, they didn't call it meditation. He just, he, he called it a way to discipline your mind a way to choose your thoughts. I mean, if that doesn't correlate beautifully with what we teach here, I mean, part of what happens is this, this whole philosophy requires a discipline of thought. Oh, I'm, you know what? I, I, the, it, in Matthew, it says, in the Matthew scriptures, the road gets narrower, which is that I don't have the luxury of thinking that anymore. I don't have the luxury of behaving that way anymore. Not because I'm trying to impress anyone, but simply because what it does, is it takes me away from the source of my good or my God, or my spirit. It moves me out of that. And so it's not about us impressing one another. It is simply about us having enough awareness and consciousness so that we can continue to walk that path with more grace and beauty and joy. So the framework is required. In fact, he talks about scaffold. He talks about having scaffolding in our lives. And he uses the example of of, uh, Michelangelo. You know, Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. He didn't just use a long roller and a, a bunch of extensions. They had scaffold. He laid on his back for I don't know how long, and he painted and painted, and he probably had to repaint sometimes, do a do-over. But he had scaffold. And for all of us, we all need that, that nurturing. We need the stimulation. We need the modeling of consciousness. We are beneficiaries of all the work that's been laid down by all the great mystics and great teachers that have gone before us. That energetic, that consciousness is still alive on the planet. And they've sort of created a way for us to step into. I mean, Dr. Ernest Holmes, when he started teaching these things back in the 1920s and 30s when he wrote his textbook, it was quite, you know, it was quite confrontational for many. I want to share with you a, a beautiful story from a book called uh, Grounded by Diana Butler Bass. And there's a beautiful story in here. It's called Finding God in the World, A Spiritual Revolution. And I think we are a spiritual revolution. She says she's the author of Christianity After Religion. I think that's a great idea, isn't it? What truly is Christianity without religion? 
the commonality and much of what she writes about in this book, but I think it's such a beautiful story about, about how we can fall asleep and how that happens and what the possibilities are. So she's talking, a, she's telling a story. She was a graduate student almost 30 years ago and she was studying at Duke University, one of the preeminent universities in the world. And she became plagued by extreme anxiety. She, was, um, she wasn't able to sleep, she wasn't able to eat. She, in fact, she'd lost 30 pounds. And so she had a lot of people who were giving her advice. Anybody ever had this, people giving you advice? I've had that. Just stand back there at the door with me on Sunday and <laughs> we'll write it down together. Anyway, but it's just the way we are because we want to help, you know. And so, um, uh, I won't go there. A story just popped in my head, but I won't tell. I, look at how disciplined I am in this, huh? <laughs> so it's a great story. Remind me to tell you the story about Pete one day, okay? There we go. But anyway, so our friend says, well, go to the beach. She thought, oh, geez, I think I'll do that. I think I'll go to the beach. So she went to Emerald Isle, North Carolina, and she stayed right on the ocean in an old, weather-worn house, nothing like the mansions more recently built on the Outer Banks. For hours, I watched the waves from a beach bench built in the wooden walkway that connected the cottage and the beach. I walked at the edge of the ocean and looked for shells mostly. It was therapeutic. Because what she says at the beginning of that, this is nature is medicine. Nature is medicine. This is an idea now reiterated by modern science. This chapter is called Water, by the way. It's all about the therapeutic experience of water. So she's on the beach. She said of all the shells, she really liked the pink conch shell. Beautiful pink conch shell. And there were only conch fragments on the beach. And she said that a friend told me that it was exceedingly difficult to find an unbroken one in these waters. But one morning while waiting in the surf, I caught a glimpse of a large pink conch. It was in the waves, not a fragment, but a whole one. And she said, I dove for the shell. It slipped through my fingers. I dove again and reached salt water stinging my eyes. I felt it in my hand and grasped it tightly as a wave knocked me off my feet. And when I came up from the water... I was still clutching the shell, wet and pearly. It was perfect. I sat on the beach holding it close to my chest, and I found myself repeating, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, I realized that I was not only glad for having found the shell, but also grateful. I had forgotten that life was a gift. Thank you was a prayer of remembrance and healing. I felt at peace, somehow sensing a spiritual turning point. Years later, I learned that the Buddhists believe that the conch symbolizes awakening and that it shakes us from the slumbers of ignorance and propels us towards a journey of self-discovery and serving others. On that day, sitting in the sand and uttered, uttering fluid prayers, I felt bizarrely happy for the first time in a long time. So what I love about this story is she just doesn't know where to go and what to do. She can't eat, she can't sleep. She's spun in this darkness of despair, chaos, and confusion. And then she went to nature. And she just paid attention to what was going on. So the practice for a while was just to watch the waves come in and the waves go out. This chapter talks quite a bit about the therapeutic value of water and the color blue and how all those things there's an aliveness and a connection for us that, that's quite wonderful. You know, Laura and I have been blessed. We live, we live down by the river now, and we walk it in the summertime, especially we walk it almost every day. And there's a renewal there. There's a vibrancy there. 
there's a connection with what's real. There's an aliveness there because it is divine. It is God in expression or God is her spirit. Whatever, whatever word works for you. So John Kabat-Zinn's, in some of his practices, the first part of the book talks about the bloom of present moment, the bloom of present moment. And he says it's simple but not easy. Simple but not easy. He says that we may encounter deep emotions on the way. All of these things, simple but not easy. It requires us to bring ourselves back and bring ourselves back. And sometimes life becomes so, so sad and so difficult, we're forced to stop in our tracks by the pain. The, the next, the next um, practice he talks about is stopping. Because he says, don't just do something, sit there and come to your senses. Don't just do something, sit there. He talks in this chapter about we are out of shape when coming to our senses. We're not used to it, our sensibilities. Two monks, two monks in robes have obviously just finished sitting in a meditation. One turns to the other and says, are you not thinking what I'm not thinking? <laughs> the, the, or the one about the Buddhist vacuum salesman. You ever heard that one about the Buddhist vacuum seals? No attachments. <laughs> Love that one. Isn't that good? I'll be driving my stepsons crazy with that one for a while. But stopping. Oh, yeah. He's got a beautiful little practice in here I want to share with you. Stopping, sitting down and becoming aware of your breath once in a while throughout the day. It can be for five minutes or for five seconds. Just let go, let go into full acceptance of the present moment, including how you're feeling and what you're perceiving to be happening. For these moments, don't try to change anything at all. Just breathe and let go. Breathe and let go. Die to having to have anything be different in this moment. In your mind and in your heart, give yourself permission to allow this moment to be exactly as it is. And allow yourself to be exactly as you are. Because we just can drive ourselves crazy. Especially at this time of year with the holidays and present buying and obligation. And, and so, you know, we can really get caught up in the whole thing. And, it's, and, and if we're caught up in it in a joy and celebration, wonderful. But if we're, we're caught up in obligation and fear and, and measuring up, it can really be quite... Uh, a difficult time. It's like uh, Teresa's doing uh, uh, coping with Christmas. Is that what you're doing? And I'm going to do a workshop next week called coping with coping with Christmas. So we'll just keep going. <laughs> move, and then we can move into the direction our heart tells us to go mindfully and with resolution. So it's that it's that it's both and. He says, this is it. Next point is this is it. In meditation, it's not about trying to improve yourself or get anywhere. I've got a, a slide here of two monks that are uh, having a discussion. And he says, nothing happens next. This is it. You know, to come out of the meditation and realize, we ain't going anywhere. This is it. This is what we're doing right now. In meditation, every state is a special state. Every moment is a special moment. And when we let go of wanting something else to happen in this moment, we take a profound step towards being able to encounter what is here now. And, and why that's significant is that many times with our teaching and our spiritual practice, 
you know, we do our prayer work, we set an intention, as Holmes talks about, we activate it through the word, and then things don't happen. But many times our words are not lining up with our consciousness. So the question to ask many times, what, what must I become? What must I put down? What must I release in order for this to be my experience? And if we have spent a lifetime with ideas about earning things or being deserving in some capacity or being good enough, all those things just become part of that baggage we carry with us. Because, no, because we either agree with all that, and some of that's good. I mean, it's good to have boundaries. It's good to have remorse and regret about mistakes made. But, but how do we process that beautifully and effectively so that it frees our, our energy up? There's a beautiful post on Facebook this week of, uh, of Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda, or Yogananda Paramahansa, uh, the Self-Realization Fellowship. And it's, he talks there about um, that we are energy, which is what Dr. Holmes would talk about as well. The spiritual realm is energy. And so if something is not showing up in our experience, it's because there's no, there's no space for it. There's no opportunity for it because we, we're, we're so filled up with the things that are going on in our lives and the judgments that we have about ourselves and others. Last, week, last month we talked about Greg Braden's book, How Relationships Mirror in Our Lives. And one mirror is that things happen that are directly correlated to where we are with control or, or whatever it may be. And then he talks about the other piece of it is that we keep things in place in our lives through judgment. He brought in three people in his life. His life went sideways, and, and he couldn't figure out, well, this isn't mirroring me. And he realized what it was mirroring is the things that he had the harshest and deepest entrenched judgment about that kept it in place. And so when we have the opportunity to create a spaciousness to look at that and let it bubble up, it can be quite powerful. You know, I've... I, um, in my own spiritual practice, I'm always surprised what stuff comes up when I'm in meditation. And uh, I have a lot of sisters. My next youngest sister, uh, so an, an episode came up uh, this, in the last couple of weeks. And when we were, I was about 10 years old, and she's, she was about six. She's four years younger than me. And we were at our grandmother's house. And, 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 and so I said to grandma, they had this little, nice little, ice cream shop, soda shop down on the corner from my grandmother's apartment. And I said, Grandma, could, you know, I want to take Joan and I, we're going to go down and get some ice cream. But we need money. Yeah. And so my grandmother gave me some money, got down there, and there wasn't enough money for the two of us to each have ice cream. So I'm 10 years old, and what do I do? I buy myself an ice cream cone and eat it in front of my sister. (laughs) And she cried the whole way home, and she cried for, I think, months after that, anyway. <laughs> and so it bubbled up in my awareness, and I thought, you know, I can do my forgiveness work for myself and all this. But I just thought, isn't this funny? This was like 50 years ago. This came up. But I've asked for it, right? I'm making myself available. What's the next, what's the next piece that I can, can bring that I can bless and release? And so I went down to the Dairy Queen down the road down here, and I walked in, and I had a $10 bill, and I said to the girl behind the counter, I said, this is going to be a really odd request, but I would like to just give you $10 and the next person that comes in, pay for their uh, whatever they order or pay for a portion, you know, of whatever it was. But what it was for me, I was guided. I said, what meaningful ritual can I perform that will help free some of this energy? Because obviously it was still, there was still a charge around it for me. You know, some people maybe completely forget about it, but I just thought, fascinating, isn't it? 
So how do we, and so when we have meaningful ritual in our lives, when there's some action we can take, you know, Gandhi talked about that a lot. There was a story where the, where the Hindu man had killed the, the Muslim and, and left the boy orphaned. And I, I don't remember all the details of it, but Gandhi said to him, then you go find, you go find a, an orphaned um, Muslim boy and you raise him as your own. Because he understood the law of karma, he learned of cause and effect. And so when we can have meaningful, tangible, physical activities in our lives, meaningful ritual in our lives to help bring things back into balance, it's powerful. But I thought, you know, this is crazy. I keep, you know, I keep running this scenario through my head. And, and it's like it's time to take some action here because my just forgiving myself mentally is not making it. And so it was very interesting to, to, to uh, have that experience. But I knew I was called to something other than just being in my head. It was time for a meaningful, a meaningful uh, practice. So the next practice is practice, practice, practice. He talks about keeping your breath in mind. Our breath can help us capture our moments. To stay with, the Buddha's first practice was, now I'm breathing in, now I'm breathing out. To stay with one full in-breath as it comes in, and one full out-breath as it goes out. Let's just try that right now. Just be aware of one full in-breath as it comes in. And one full out-breath as it goes out. We, I mean, we're breathing anyway. We don't have to take a class, read a book. And in those breaths, abandon all ideas of getting somewhere or having anything happen. Just return to the breath when the mind wanders. When you start living out in the future or pasteurizing, futurizing or pasteurizing. He says, our breath, John Kabat-Zinn says, our breath teaches you that not only does unawareness go with the territory, not only does falling asleep go with the territory, it is the territory. It is the territory. Look at the world. And lots of things intrude carrying us off, preventing us from concentrating. We see our minds having gotten cluttered over the years like an attic with old bags and accumulated junk. And so to have a process of awareness and releasing, and if it's really, like I shared with you my, my story of my sister, if it's, if it's staying stuck with you, find a meaningful ritual. You know, if you have somebody in your past that you haven't been able to release, find a way to have a memorial service for them. I take a shoebox and put some things in. I just did this with my grandmother. I had a grandmother that she hated me and I hated her. And I realized I keep bringing my grandmother into my life. I think I've learned enough from this shared hatred of one another. And uh, so I took an, an, a, you know, a shoebox and I, she loved to drink beer. She drank beer most of the time. I put a bottle of beer in there. Smoked cigarettes like a sailor. Packed smokes in there for her. And she loved to gamble. And she used to sit and curse every time the Minnesota Twins would not line up with the number she'd... And so I put a lottery ticket in there for her. And I did a little memorial service for her. And I blessed her. I said, let's return this energy to source so it can be transformed. I don't want to give you back any of this anger or resentment. I bless you, release you. We don't need to do this anymore, this dance. Having meaningful ritual. Because our minds and our beings get cluttered over the years. He continues the next one. Practice does not mean rehearsal. We don't do this because we're all going to get all, all meditated up here and get really good at it because we got a performance. 
New Year's Eve, we're going to do a performance for all the Baptists in Edmonton. They're going to come in and we're going to sit and be calm and meditative and peaceful for them. Not a performance. It's not a, it's not a competition. Best meditators in Edmonton. We should get some shirts made up. You know, those kind of things. It's not that. It's not that at all. We simply commit fully to being present. Simply permit fully to being present. I've got a... He says, mindful practice means that we commit fully in each moment to being present. There's no performance. There's just this moment. We're not trying to improve or get anywhere else. We're not even running after special insights or visions, nor are we forcing ourselves to be non-judgmental. Nor are we forcing ourselves to be non-judgmental, calm, or relaxed. And we are certainly not promoting self-consciousness or indulging in self-preoccupation. Rather, we are simply inviting ourselves to interface with this moment in full awareness and with the intention of embodying as best as we can an orientation of calmness, mindfulness, and equanimity right here and right now. And equanimity is another word for balance. It's all we're doing. It's all we're doing. Committing to the present moment. The next slide is uh, one of my favorite teachers, Mark Twain. He said, there has been a huge amount of tragedy in my life, and some of it actually happened. <laughs> all of the things that we can anticipate, all of the, the horrible things that could take place. I mean, it's so insightful. I mean, this is a condition that has been with us forever. The worrying, the concern. So I'm going to, I want to, and then the last quality is a radical act of love, which I think is so wonderful. And this time of year, and all the things that are happening on the planet, we just had another shooting in San Bernardino in California, and of course, the, what happened in France. And so what do we do as awake and aware people that care? What is mine to do in this? What is happening? Why? And, and so we are blessed to live in this environment of, of abundance and have an opportunity to look at the, the world from this, this perspective, this place, and, and to realize that there are people that have just simply become so marginalized and bitter that this is what happens with this, that there's not an understanding or a depth of understanding how connected we are. You know, and, it's, and, and of course, there's certain religious and, and um, uh, groups of people that, are, that can be judged about this. And yet, some of the greatest metaphysical poetry has come out of the Muslim tradition. Rumi and Sufi, uh, Rumi and uh, uh, Kabir, Hafez. Beautiful, beautiful poetry. And yet, it's so easy when we, when we fall asleep in the, the dream of the effect. So he says this, about coming to our senses and about this radical act of love. At the pace of our lives continuing to be accelerated by a host of forces seemingly beyond our control, more and more of us are finding ourselves drawn to engage in meditation. He was talking about this, and he, he, I watched him on YouTube, and he, John Kabat-Zinn's, and he was at a function at Dartmouth College, and he talked about how here we were on a beautiful Saturday afternoon after a harsh winter, and he said, this room is full of people that simply want to understand mindfulness. But he said, we are moving in a direction of meditative awareness for many reasons not the least of which may be to maintain our sanity or recover our perspective and sense of meaning or simply to deal with the outrageous stress and insecurity of this age. You know what the highest percentage of the age group for men that is now taking their own lives? 
they're from 50 to 60. 50 years old to 60 years old is now the new guys want to check out, which is just a reflection, I think, of the stress and the way things are shifting and changing and so many of the, the unknowns. And if you don't have a place to land and stand with this, you can spin into that type of despair. By stopping and intentionally falling awake to how things are in this moment, purposefully, without succumbing to reaction or judgment, and by working wisely with such occurrences, with a healthy dose of self-compassion, when we do succumb, and by our willingness to take up residency for a time in the present moment in spite of all of our plans and activities aimed at getting somewhere else, completing a project, or pursuing desired objects or goals, we discover that such an act is both immensely, discouragingly difficult, and yet utterly simple, profound, and hugely possible after all, and restorative of mind, body, and soul. It is indeed a radical act of love just to sit down and be quiet for a time by yourself. Sitting down in this way is actually a way to take a stand in your life as it is right now, however it is. We take a stand here and now by sitting down and by sitting up. He has some beautiful practices I'm going to share next week about sitting in dignity when we meditate. The dignity of ourselves and what we represent, who we are and whose we are. Blessings. Thank you so much.